Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My guest this week is at a fishtrap on Twitter. She's another fan of Grace and Kings, by which both of us mean that we want to discuss the book endlessly with anyone who will listen. Where my reading background is all of the Western epic tradition, she's been an amateur translator of Chinese works for years, and is coming from exactly the opposite side of the coin, primarily familiar with the Chinese sources. Grace of Kings itself is award-winning short story author Ken Liu's debut novel and the first book of the new Dandelion Dynasty. It's a sweeping silk punk epic fantasy that tells the story of the fall of an empire and the two warlords who depose it. The setting is not a simple analog to medieval China, though much of the plot is a retelling of a moment in Chinese history. Ken has said that both the Chinese romance of the Three Kingdoms and Western epic traditions are heavy influences. In this and subsequent episodes, which I will intersperse among the regular interviews so as not to drive most of you away, we're going to dive deep on various themes and questions within the book. We're definitely assuming a familiarity with the novel and we'll probably be spoiling pieces, so if that's not your thing, you may want to come back later. We're starting with a passage that comes well after the halfway point of the novel, which I said when I finished is the one that I want to argue with the most. As happens throughout the discussion, my background means that Fishtrap and I had slightly different readings of the important aspects of this passage. It is, I think, not the most interesting part of Grace of Kings, but it struck me that it's Cooney getting ready to set up his court on the island after he's been exiled. Mm Mm-hmm. It's his advisor, Kogo, who is kind of picking and choosing who of the various people who are petitioning and saying, can we come to your court? Can we get funding? Can we try out our experiments? Right. And there are a whole bunch of people who have practical scientific experiments who come and say, I would like to do my practical scientific experiments. And Kogo says, great, that's wonderful. And later on, we see that most of those practical scientific experiments have become ways to tunnel under the ocean and build submarines and do all sorts of neat practical scientific stuff that lets Cooney win the war and escape his exile. Mm -hmm. And then there's the person who says that they want to write a treatise on the relationship of the gods to mankind, how the proper model for the state may be derived from the patterns of rivers and winds. Kogo's eyes glaze over, and he says, I think Kuni is somewhat preoccupied, but I have a feeling the hegemon would be extremely appreciative. So basically Kogo is saying, we would like hard-headed science. We don't want any of this philosophy nonsense. We don't want dealing with the gods. We don't want to see how fate works. We would like hard-headed practical science. And the people who are interested in how fate and the gods work are not hard-headed practical people who can help us win this war. I read that as kind of more broadly a statement of Cooney's administration and how Cooney approaches the world. And... Turns out if you're Mata and you want to get your army off the island, you need to sacrifice a whole bunch of people to the ocean god in order to get off the island. And you need to find that out from an old priestess. I think it gets into some really interesting ideas about how much the gods are actually present and active in the world. It, to some extent, gets into some interesting ideas about value of science versus value of intellectual inquiry for its own sake. Well, yes and no. Cooney's reaction, and and I took that particular passage to be not necessarily we have no interest in these philosophical questions so much as now is not the time for those philosophical questions, but there will be a time. So go ahead and write this and and we'll file it. And when we have a chance, we'll read it. So Cooney's 
you can see in the way he interacts with people that he is he is not so easily led. And I think it's that openness to where if it had been Mata's side, it would have been, uh, you know, why are you wasting my time? Get the hell out of here. Whereas Kuni's people are much more like, you know, we've got priorities, but we're not going to shut you down for it. Oh, we read this very differently. <laughs> I read the... His eyes glazed over. He says, okay, I'll give you a meal and then write you a letter of introduction and get you out. Of, like, I mean, the hegemon at that point is Mata, right? So Kogo is sending the guy off oh. to Mata's court, I think. No, actually, you're right. For some reason, I read the hegemon as like the local governor who was in cahoots with Kuni. Yeah, I don't think so. I think that that's... that's I mean, that's how I read it because it's... Because it's not a get-out-of-our-face. I... So Kuni's been in Dasu for a year. Kogo's beginning to see the fruits of his efforts, attracting men and women of talent to the island. And we have a page and a half of... Scientific, yeah. ...coming and visiting. Method for converting lead into gold. Kogo nodded and politely invited the alchemist to stay in Dasu and raise money from private sources. So he, he is explicitly trying to sift through the charlatans for nuggets of gold. And for the first yeah. person, he says, all right, lead into gold would be great, but we don't think you can do it, so go raise money from somebody else, and then if you can pull it off, we'll take <laughs> advantage, which is, I mean, fairly brilliant. You know, I actually did not read the whole, some of those where he turns him down, I read it as, this is how science works, where we get our big advances, our military. Yes. So, lead into gold is going to do what for military? Well, it means I can I can pay for all of the things that I want to do. Well, that depends on how your political system is set up. And the impression I got from the book was that they have a corvette, so you don't have to pay people. They're obligated. Yeah, that's it's true. It's part of a citizenship's duty. It is true that, that one of the problems is you do have to pay soldiers, you do have to pay for food, so there, there is some payment going on, mm -hmm. but... I don't get the impression that being set up as king means Cooney is is left destitute. The real issue is what military use does this have? Right. But Kogo gets visited by four or five people. Mm -hmm. There's the lead into gold. Then there is softening stones. Kogo says, all right, we definitely want you to stay with us and be our guest. Mm-hmm. Then there's extracting energy from volcanic heat. Again, not sure how it could be useful, but it could be interesting. Stay with us and build a prototype. And then the guy comes along who says, I can tell you about the relationship of the gods with mankind. Yeah. And Kogo says, go away, we'll feed you, and then I'll write you a letter of introduction. Yeah. No, I see you reading. I think the reason I saw it mostly unremarkable, mm -hmm. and what I actually assumed you were twigging on, was... The scientific element itself. Go on. In other words, the, the, your reaction had been, sure, somebody just looked at volcanoes and went, hey, I can do something with steam. You know, we're two steps away from an engine, which is a big leap technologically. I had some real problems with Cooney getting exiled to a small island and ending up with submarines. I mean, that's how that works and what that says about how much I'm supposed to believe plausibly in the world and the scientific advances versus just enjoying the spectacle. I don't need plausibility there in order to get submarines because they're really cool. 
that's that's one of the places actually where having read plenty of Chinese history, I was just like, Good God, what took you so long? I mean, we're practically on page five hundred by my ebooks count. I mean, when you look at the number of inventions that were hundreds okay. of years before anybody else during especially the Tang Dynasty, I think it was, is when things went totally insane. And you had people coming up with movable type and compasses and intricate canal lock systems and steamers for food and plowshares and okay, a completely different type of rudder system. So I looked at that and I went, whether or not Westerners realize that there's a core underneath here which values science. Mm-hmm. And so that, to me, I just read that as, of course these ideas are floating around. Of course there are people fiddling around with these ideas. Because that was one of the ways you got noticed. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really interesting, because I definitely saw this as being kind of all of a sudden scientific development that, that came sort of out of nowhere. And that's <laughs> very much because all of my background is Western medieval. Yeah. I mean, we really, I mean, there's the old, and, and I wouldn't, I don't know if you'd say it's a joke so much as sort of this stereotype that, that China invented paper, fireworks, and something else, noodles, I think it is. But in fact, there's a crap load of things they invented mm-hmm. that they were doing hundreds of years before anybody else. By the time Westerners met up with many of those things, those inventions had already had several hundred years to infiltrate throughout many other parts of Asia. Mm-hmm. So we met derivations of them, like incendiary bombs or drills, as in drilling through boreholes. Mm-hmm. So then it's like, well, actually, it was some dude in China came up with that in order to win a battle. But do I see that as kind of a, all the stuff is already there, and you mm-hmm. kind of take it for granted. And uh, and in a lot of the Chinese stuff that I've read and seen, it's very common to have somebody come up with this totally out of left field engineering or technological advance. Okay. That's a big part of this tradition, I guess you could say. So that's what I assumed that you were twigging on. I didn't even really think about the, the philosopher part. I just went, oh, okay, whatever. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I saw... Interesting to me that I didn't pick up at all on the crisis moment, military need driving technological development and innovation, which is, it sounds like, part of the tradition and not nearly as implausible as it seemed to me from from reading the Western sources. But what I did pick up on, and a lot of this is, to some extent, my own pet peeves in reading, is there seems to be a conflict between science and practical engineering and theology and philosophy, and this seemed to be coming down pretty clearly on the side of Cooney, on the side of practical over over philosophy. Well, yeah, but I, I think that's also, you know, during peacetime we can sit around and discuss what our relationship to the gods is, uh, God, you know, what our relationships to the gods is, I guess, but during wartime it's, you know, build me a bigger tank. <sighs> We should talk about the gods because because it is easy to say we shouldn't, you know, during wartime, build me a bigger tank. During peacetime, I can think about my relationship with the gods. It is easy to say that when gods are not particularly present and active in the world. Yeah, and I've got one for you for that. All right. Okay, so normally I am 
I don't think the author has anything to do with this. <laughs> I, I'm pretty firmly on the, the side of once the story is out there, the author's interpretation is just one of many. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the core story underneath, and this is, this is one of those things that kind of filters in when you read many stories. Uh, it was just Ken was able to point it out explicitly in one of his panels at ArmadilloCon. Mm -hmm. And that is the difference between that Chinese folklore is has a very different view of the dif of the divine. That the moral authority to be able to do something is not bestowed by the divine in Chinese folklore. Okay. That's something humans provide. One of the one of the stories he told is about the kitchen god. In old kitchens in China, you will still sometimes see the paper. They plastered once a year, I believe, over the kitchen stove, you know, when you renew everything. And mm -hmm. the kitchen god, you're supposed to put sticky rice balls okay. in, in a bowl as an offering to the kitchen god. And the idea is that the kitchen god will then eat the sticky rice and it will make his teeth stick together so that when he gets to heaven to report once a year on, you know, how you're doing, uh, that he won't be able to say anything. Okay. That is a very different relationship with the divine than the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yes. Um, it's, you know, <laughs> you're pulling the wool over. You have the authority to pull the wool over. You are not expecting, you know, to end up in hell because you pulled the wool over divine eyes. Right. And so the way he put it was in Christian tradition, the morality comes from God. But in the Chinese folklore... Gods are more commentators on what humans are doing, and occasionally guides. But they are not the ones who say, this is what is right, or this is what is wrong. I mean, the other contrast beyond the, the Chinese gods as guides and commentators, and yeah, there's the Judeo-Christian tradition of providing the morality and authority, but there's also the Greek tradition of gods acting in the world on their own passions and motivations. There, again, I think the gods are much more active than they usually are in Grace of Kings. I mean, you don't have them appearing on the battlefield and helping the great champion go and, and yeah. rampage across the battlefield for a while. And it's, I think I really like that there clearly are gods, and in world the gods literally exist, and they do literally interact with the world. Not very much, and in fairly circumscribed and also fairly unpredictable ways. I mean, I think of, you know, Brandon Sanderson's notion that magic should be a system. Yeah. It is very much not in Grace of Kings, and personally, I approve magic that is unpredictable and, and can play out in lots of different ways. Well, I mean, you're kind of losing your sense of the fantastical if you add oxygen to hydrogen and in the right quantities you always get water. Right. You know, the the element of surprise, of, of unpredictability is, well, there's not much of that there. One of the things that, that, I don't know if you had this with the gods appearing in stories. I've read more than my share of fantasy where the gods appear in the story and it feels like a deus ex machina, literally, because mm -hmm. when you think, especially coming from the Western tradition, a god is so powerful, all they have to do is really say, all right, you know, I'm going to wave my hand, and the character wouldn't have to go through that conflict. You know, things would be taken care of. But in Grace of Kings, there are several scenes where I think a god showed up, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, 
And even where they do, I mean, you've got thing. I, I remember one of the early ones being Mata going is at some lord's house and gets ambushed, and the god makes sure that things show up as shields for him at appropriate times so that he can escape. I mean, it's hardly a flashy and dramatic intervention, nor is it an intervention. It's, it's closer to sort of bending the laws of chance. There's a point, and I didn't bookmark it, but there's at least two points that I can recall where someone is speaking to an old man in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure which god that actually was. But by the second time, I'm like, all right, somebody is putting their fingers into the mix. But then when you have the god speaking, I, I was like, well, which of you did that? It's this, it is almost as though the gods between themselves, you have kind of this unspoken agreement that if we do anything, we're going to be kind of discreet about it so as to not imbalance stuff. I think that's really, really key. I have the sense that the gods could appear more and they don't, and they don't because of agreements among themselves. Well, I mean, they mentioned that at the very beginning. They, you know, here I've got my turf and you've got your turf. Mm -hmm. And the impression I got when I was, when you're very first introduced to them, the, the strong impression I got was that maybe at some point in the past they have been a little bit more active and they quickly offset each other and it ended up, <laughs> you know, Things went south very quickly. I found myself wondering, and still kind of find myself wondering, if we're going to see in a later book a predecessor god, an older... Because I think I remember feeling like the Empire, that they're all settlers. Um, and and, I, and yeah. I'm trying to remember, was it Tan Adu that Kunin goes to and... Meets the natives and gets the narwhals and then goes charging up the river. Yeah. And they, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, this was entirely kind of me thinking about gods and thinking about what might come. But I find myself wondering if there is another divine actor off screen. And whether it's a bigger and more powerful divine actor that the gods don't want to alert. Or just there's a whole other culture out there that, that has been supplanted for a long time but might still be waiting in the wings. Or maybe I'm totally overreading. Well, the impression I got, there's a scene with all of them, and they're having a discussion. It's right after the death of the emperor. That's that's one of the first times we see, and one of the few times we see, a human interacting with a god, and both are clearly defined. We know for certain that yes. the emperor is talking to a god, as opposed to finishing the scene and going, uh, I don't know, maybe that was just a really strange coincidence or you know an old man making you know pretending to be something he's not well and the emperor knows that he's talking to a god as i recall right yeah and that's usually the emperor's role when you say emperor the important thing to remember in in the tradition is that one of the emperor's biggest jobs is to act as the intercessor with heaven Mm -hmm. And to perform the rituals every year that keep the you know the, the land prosperous and and everybody happy and healthy and no famine etc. So mm -hmm. if you have famine and if you have war, it's a sign that the emperor is not doing his job. You have the obligation to rebel at that point. So so yeah, the sense that the emperor would be able to speak directly to the gods, well, that's one of the emperor's things he's supposed to be able to do. Mm -hmm. 
And and so I think in that respect, it's kind of interesting that I don't know if Kuni or Mata ever speak directly to a god while knowing they're speaking to a god. Right. Or even Kuni's advisor, the philosopher, who does. I mean, he explicitly gets... Well, I don't know about explicitly. He's he's one of the ones who, on a couple of different occasions, encounters the old man, and I think even gets the book that kind of periodically yeah. he leaves through it and gets information. But I don't know that he actually yeah. realizes I'm speaking to a god in the way that the emperor does. Yeah, I mean, it's more like the emperor is on a first name basis, right? And I mean, there there's definitely a sense that Tazu, when he meets the emperor. He has a domain, but the emperor also has a domain. They're they're meeting almost like equals in that respect, mm-hmm. and and I think that's telling that, that we won't know who the emperor is until we see somebody doing that with the gods again. That had not even occurred to me, but yeah, that you don't get to do that until you have you hold that position of that that ritual position of the emperor, and I mean. If the author is following that kind of set of assumptions, uh-huh. which then then that would be that's one of the points where you know you are the just and righteous emperor that you can perform that role. And that makes me really wonder. You could have a situation in which both the emperor and the reader know who the emperor is, but others don't. Right? Because to some extent, anyone who is not the emperor has to kind of take on faith that the emperor is actually talking to the gods. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And that, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there's any tradition in, in at least the Chinese literature that Ken's drawing on. I don't know if there's any tradition of questioning whether the emperor who can speak with the gods and do the rituals, questioning whether or not, in fact, the emperor is speaking with the gods and doing the rituals. Well, there are, this this shows up a lot during the Ming Dynasty, because they had a few emperors who were, shall we say, not entirely all there. (laughs) There's one who, if you ever watch Wuxia, he gets to be the bad guy over and over again. And most of the time, to be fair, he's treated more as anywhere from somewhat insane to completely off his rocker. And for the life of me, I can't remember his name right now. He was absolutely, absolutely obsessed with the notion of living forever. And there are a number of wuxia that play on the notion of one of the rituals that the emperor would perform or or one of the ways it's represented, at least in wuxia, is fortune-telling every year that the emperor then has his special people uh, interpret for him so that then he can say, look, you know, the gods have spoken to me and and this is what's going to happen in the coming year and, and so everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. But there's obviously a breakdown if your emperor is not entirely sane, so no matter what you tell him, the emperor is like, oh, let me interpret that the way I would like to. Right. And that's where the breakdown seems to usually occur, is not that the gods wouldn't speak, but that either A, Somebody is manipulating the information that is given to the emperor that is ostensibly, you know, the fortune telling. Mm-hmm. Or the emperor is just going to ignore it anyway. <laughs> and and say, that's okay, I want to invade Mongolia. I don't care what you say. Because it seems to me that there is, and, and again, this is, I'm thinking more of the Western tradition and just don't know how much it applies, but there are all kinds of cases of prophecies that and and signs and symbols that can be interpreted in many different ways and don't get interpreted properly. Right. I mean, you have Cassandra, who 
you can see exactly what's going to happen, but no one will ever believe you. Yeah. And in Grace of Kings, early on, you've got the prophecy of the fish. And the notion mm. that, I don't even remember exactly how it went, but what, there was the fish that had a, a paper inside it or something that said these people are going to be emperor? Oh, right. And, yeah. you know, lots of people believe that the gods had planted this and that this was, in fact, a divine message. And then later you get some hints that maybe it wasn't. And then later you get confirmation that, in fact, no, this is, this is nonsense. This was just charlatanry. Right. And so it seems to me that to the extent, I, I found it really interesting and exciting that you pointed out that there will be a new emperor. Like one of the key indicators of being a new emperor is being able to speak with the gods directly and knowing that you're speaking to the gods. Well, to be, to be truthful, I don't know whether it's you are emperor because you can speak to the gods or if because you are emperor you can speak to the gods. Mm -hmm. At the very least, there's a lot of potential for ambiguity and misunderstanding. And you could have a character who may or may not realize that they're in that role and may be claiming that role and may or may not have the relationship with the gods that they think they do. You could mm -hmm. have the reader having more or less certainty about the sort of relationship with the gods that a character has. And then you could have the other characters having more or less certainty about the relationship with the gods the character has. Right, like there's there's lots of potential there for interesting narrative choices in the future. What started for me as a simple question about the value of practical engineering versus knowledge of divine harmony in a book where the gods are powerful if distant actors is clearly not quite so simple. As happened in our discussion, I'm going to give myself the last word, but I'm less confident now than I was that this important question of the Dandelion Dynasty undercuts the passage that we started with. And I guess another thing that's interesting is it's not clear to me that we know what the gods want. And yet I still feel like some of what's going on here is that the gods and power structures right now are out of whack. Oh, yeah. And that the logical point to drive towards is when they're not. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. This week's book is Black Sun Rising by C.S. Friedman, the first book in the Cold Fire trilogy. I am fairly sure that I mentioned it as a formative book in the first episode. I was prompted to revisit it by the blog Bibliotropic. They are currently reading for the very first time Black Sun Rising and blogging along detailed responses throughout. I saw the first couple of chapters a week or two ago and got all sorts of feelings of nostalgia and remembering the priest Damien Bryce and Erna where the fae is magical and beautiful and just infuses everything and of course I found myself thinking once again about Gerald Tarrant the very very compelling and incredibly dangerous and evil anti-hero against which Damien is measured it's a book that takes religion seriously and thinks seriously about ways that traditions from earth could be modified and changed and adapted in a world in which magic exists. I found it at the right time. It's wonderful. It's great. I am incredibly grateful to Rhea of Bibliotropic, who is doing this read and reminded me of the book and gave me all sorts of happy feelings, and I really, really like it.
And so that's our book for the week and reminder that book blogs can have all sorts of unexpected effects on those who are reading them. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at J. Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at King Cabbage Cast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.